Hello, everybody, uh, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Madams Cast. Well, I mean, I think it's exciting, and hopefully my guests will think it's exciting. Uh, whether you find it exciting or not is up to you. But please do get in touch and let us know if you're enjoying it or with any comments or feedback. And please, I know I sound like a stuck record, but if you're sharing the cast or you're listening to the cast, please download it rather than streaming it so that I can reach a bigger audience. Um, or don't and uh, feel slightly smug about the fact that you've got a tiny bit of power over me. Brilliant. Uh, this week's guest is someone who I've kind of been hoping to have a really long chat with head to head for quite a while. Um, and so that's a brilliant thing about the cast is that actually, basically, I'm just indulging my opportunities to talk to people that I would like to talk to a bit more that we normally always seem to find ourselves in rather busy situations when we get together. This time, it is the rather brilliant Greg from Stroud Brewery. So Greg Pilly, are you there live from Stroud Brewery? I'm here, Tim, and I'm flattered to be invited. Uh, thanks for, for inviting me here. And I've poured myself a beer, so I'm in it for the long haul. Oh, top man, top man. What brew are you drinking? I've got a bottle of our budding here. Uh, as you know, our first brew ever budding, named after the guy who invented the lawnmower. Uh, and those lawnmowers are manufactured on this very site where our brewery is. So we're on ground zero for lawnmowers the world over. That is, that is brilliant. And, and very representative of the quirky minds that seem to be involved in modern groovy brewing. Now, Greg, I'm going to try and lead you into giving me a little bit more background about the Stroud Brewery, the project, the concept and how you got there as a kind of introductory section to the podcast. Okay. Now I know, I know it can feel a little bit awkward talking about yourself uh, but you've got a great project to talk about. So I, can you just give me a little bit more of the story? Sure. Uh, I've long had an interest in beer, and uh, as many of us do, and that will start at <laughs> university, where it does for many. Uh, and I, you know, trying to drink on a budget, started doing a bit of brewing at that time. Um, I was actually studying marine biology at the time, an ecology degree, and I went on to do a little bit of that, uh, beyond university. Um, another part of my background, living in the countryside, I spent uh, uh, quite a lot of time on local farms. And one farm in particular, uh, where I paid off my university debt, converted to organic farming. And it was managed by a fantastic guy that's influenced the rest of my life, uh, who uh, has long had an interest in wildlife and uh, promoting wildlife on the farm. And yeah. he was the founder of an organization called FWAG, or the Farming and Wildlife Advisory Group. Uh, so I had an interest in brewing beer. I had an interest in farming. Uh, I had an interest in how people can actually manage and be connected to uh, the landscape that they live in. Uh, and there's quite a lot in between there and now, but yeah, those interests yeah. uh, finally culminated uh, in establishing a brewery in Stroud. Uh, where, you know, we can make great products, but at the same time, as you're drinking your pint to look out the window, you know that those beers are in some way uh, affecting the landscape that we live in. Awesome. And, and in a positive way, too, which is just such a nice thing to hear. Now, I'm just going to go backwards before we go forwards, Greg, because I'm really interested in how this I, I can totally get the situation of I'm at uni. I mean, I didn't go to university, but uh, if you're at uni and you're short of funds and you want some beer, then brewing some beer is a good way to, to do that. And the sort of thought process could be quite straightforward. All I need is, you know, something for the yeast to eat and something to give the water some flavour and a bit of time and we're away. But did you, I know from my own youthful experiences with home brewing, I bought a kit to make beer with. And I think that might have been a mistake because I seem to have found making fermented things a bit easier in my adult life without a kit but then I haven't revisited kits. Maybe it was a bad kit. What did you do? Did you did you make your own sort of whole beer from scratch or what? I did exactly what you did. I bought kits and they were awful. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and the challenge, 
always was to try and you know brew something that was at least drinkable and generally they weren't um you know those, those kits were bad um and actually, when I, I talked about the farm I, I lived on, I had the, the privilege of a little cottage uh, in the middle of nowhere, which was great for parties. And that's when I started doing full mash brewing. I actually bought bags of malted barley, uh, and that really revolutionized my brewing. But having said that, the, the kits that you can get these days are so much better. I've heard some, heard some really good stories. I've not actually brewed with them. But I do know the quality is much improved. Uh, and yeah. together with that, the yeast that they use with them. So rather than sort of a bag of baker's yeast, there's some really refined brewing yeasts. Uh, and yeast is a big part of the, the final style of a beer. So, you know, they've actually, uh, um, you know, spent some time creating uh, or making good yeasts available to home brewers. Oh, God bless them, whoever they are. <laughs> uh, future generations will not have to deal with uh, I think I tried to make something that was like a, 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 a lager type product. And I can tell you, it was a very long way from lager. And now that I know what I know about generally food and drink, I can tell you what it tasted of. And it tasted of over-fermented bread dough. That's what it tasted of. Mm. So maybe it was the yeast that was my problem there. I mean, let's be clear about this. I was 17 and it definitely all got drunk. <laughs> <laughs> there was ethanol in it and that was good enough for us. You can't but waste that. Yeah, no, I didn't repeat the process for a while. Um, okay, okay. Right, one more thing, I think, before we dive into our three things that we've got here. Can you just tell me when you started Stroud Brewery? Sure. So we did our first brew at the end of May 2006. Um, uh, and we brewed, as I've mentioned already, our Budding, our flagship beer commemorating Edwin Budding. It was a 4.5% uh, a pale beer. Um, and at that time, we, we introduced it. It had a, a Fuggles hop, which is a traditional UK hop. Uh, yeah. And it's sort of described as having a grassy bitterness. And we started using an American hop, quite a bold floral hop called Amarillo. Uh, and the idea was to have a grassy bitterness with a floral aroma to celebrate lawn mowing. That was the yeah. fun we were having at the start. Um, but of course, the, the concept of a brewery happened several years before that. Uh, you know, it took time to actually get it together to, to start a brewery. Um, you know, it needed money, it needed a space, and it needed, uh, you know, time within within my own working life to be able to enable it. And those are the sort of things that we all have to overcome to start our own business. Yeah, but you are a determined man, and I know that, and I am in no way surprised that you managed to pull that off. Um, okay, Greg, I, you touched on hops there, and for years I've you know, I'm a bit of a keen forager. I have a big interest in mushrooms well, and all, all mycology, really. But I, I also have a big interest in plants and basically anything you can get for nothing. Um, and I was walking down the hedgerow at the bottom of the lane here by my house in East Devon last year. And for the, it was a new one for me. It was a first for me. I've been keeping my eye out for a while. But I spotted some wild hops. Now, this year, they are all over the hedgerow, like much more than last year. Mm -hmm. uh, can I can I pick those hops, dry them out, and use them to flavour a brew? You could. Um, you Would don't you know what they're going to do. Yeah. So, uh, a wild hop will be, you know, uh, genetically could be a mix of all sorts. So our our varieties that we know are Fuggles, are Goldings. Those varieties are all clones or propagated from a single plant. So somebody found a plant, they liked the characteristics of it, and then split off roots or took cuttings, uh, and they're all giant, genetically identical. So yeah. those uh, hedgerow plants, you know, they're actually wild fertilized, uh, and they will produce anything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if you can collect enough from it to produce a brew, I mean, you need a lot of hops. So commercially, those hops are, are propagated, multiplied, and uh, grown in numbers uh, down the middle of a field. So, you, you know, you've already recognized that these things are growing in the hedge, and they tend to be single plants growing in a hedge. Yeah. Uh, and in a, in a sort of um, a cultivated setting, they're grown in rows, multiple plants, uh, quite intensively in the middle of a field, which is exactly what they don't generally like. Uh, the consequence of that 
together with centuries of growing, is that they're very susceptible to disease, and in particular, uh, fungal diseases. Uh, oh. And of course, the strains which might be great for flavor and aroma and things might not be the most resistant to diseases. Mm. So historically, uh, those hops are quite heavily sprayed. You know, a farmer uh, invests a lot of time in growing the hops. The, the kit that's used to harvest them is very specialized and it's only used for a few weeks of the year. Uh, not like something like a combine harvester, which you can use for for uh, harvesting wheat and barley and rapeseed and linseed, you know, you can use it for multiple things. Actually, hop cult um, harvesting gear is a one-off for a few weeks of the year. And if your crop fails, all that infrastructure, all the barns, uh, that is wasted cash. So uh, that historically, farmers do spray hops quite heavily. So for us, uh, we're an organic brewery. One of our uh, one of the main sort of um, differentiating ingredients of a beer is the hops and that is our biggest limiting factor yeah. uh, you know this they're far reduced in number but of course uh you know we don't want those um uh, pesticides and insecticides in our beer all right i've got a plan i've got a plan i'm gonna i'm gonna harvest the pollen from my wild hops in my hedgerow and i'm gonna take them to a hop farmer who's struggling with his resilience or her resilience organically and i'm going to give them those that pollen and they're going to cross pollinate theirs and then we're going to have a new variety that's got the vigorous growth of a wild hedgerow version and the and the ability to fight off these fungal diseases and the flavor of the brilliant hops that they want is that going to work do you know what that is exactly what they're doing so we know someone's done it already they're doing it um, good for them so uh, in the in the in the sixties, uh, as the uh, global breweries sort of got a grip of the market, what they wanted was cheap bitterness, and a lot of our interesting varieties of hops were grubbed up, and just the ones that produced lots of bitterness for few plants were kept, uh, and so the number of varieties really declined. And uh, now with a sort of resurgence in craft brewing and the recognition that, you know, hops is sort of a real uh, distinguishing feature, people are, and brewers are scrambling for new flavors and new hops. So there is a bit of resurgence in, in hops uh, and hop growers are, are looking for new varieties with those big, bold flavors that we like. But at the same time, they've got to be disease resistant. Uh, and you know our hop supplier uh, a company called charles ferrums in herefordshire you know they've been going for a long time trading hops uh, they have a very active hop breeding program and they do exactly that uh, and uh, you know something we're interested in is uh, looking you know if they're looking for disease resistance well let's try and grow those hops uh, organically uh, and it's, it's a project that i'm really keen to to pursue yeah, yeah, I can imagine you are. I mean, it's fascinating, right? Um, and and yeah, maybe yeah. Hopefully, you can come up with your own amazing variety of hop. I mean, that would be just a very cool landmark mm. to leave on the history of the planet. Um, right, Greg. Okay, so I, I feel like we could sit here and aimlessly amble about with our conversation for quite a while, and that wouldn't be a bad thing. That would be a great thing. But there is a format, unfortunately, to the Madam's Cast, and so I have to ask you about your three things that you would like to change about the world of food and drink okay because obviously um i realize that you've got a strong care and desire to think about brewing but i also know you've got a lot to say about food production in general as well as quite a few thoughts on what tastes nice and nice and what doesn't so um are you feeling like you're ready to dive into that bit of the show gosh you've you've sprung this on me i didn't realize there was a format i could have had a thing oh, but God, three things three things i'd like to change yeah, just three things. And, and they can be as funny as you like. They can be as lighthearted and flippant as you want. They can be as serious as you want. They can, you know, it's, in, and, and let's face it, by the time you get to the third one, you thought of six more that you want to talk about as well, but you're not allowed. But some people cheat and sort of mention quite a lot of stuff that they don't want to nominate, if you see what I mean. Um, I thought I'd sent you a format document, but clearly I haven't. I'm shuffling around <laughs> now, looking at my checklist and going, I clearly have sent that because I've ticked it off. But then I'd also ticked off um, the recording session that I managed to miss with you last week. So sorry about that. <laughs> it's all right. Well, it's quite I, I've scribbled some things on my pad here. Um, and, you know, 
farming and our landscape has always been important to me and I think people don't realize how important it is to them even if you live in the city uh, we all take for granted that the the countryside that we like to go and have our rec recreation in is highly managed uh, and is largely managed for you know agriculture and and food production so uh, really the task of connecting us as consumers with the land and knowing that actually food is grown it's not like just created you know as a factory product there's a huge task there mm -hmm. uh, and relocalizing our food supply i think is probably top of the list so i would like to see far more emphasis on uh, local production and supply. Um, give, you know, me, we... give me a couple of the benefits of that. I mean, I, what I really love on the Madam's Cast is, is examples, because when we have an example, I, it's quite easy for me, for example, to sit here and interview you or somebody else. And I've got, I know a little bit about food production. I know a little bit about what I think about ecology. And I've read a few books and bits and pieces. But there are other people out there hopefully listening to this and going well i don't know any of that so just something that will frame it nicely for us have you got a great example i know well, i can give you a bit of a story and which is sort of yes. again part of the story that brought me to brewing beer and having a brewery but uh i i'd spent um a fairly well it wasn't misspent but i didn't didn't hold down a job for a long time i did a lot of traveling and i arrived back in the uk with an interest in farming i thought right what i really want to do is grow vegetables and i had no idea how to grow vegetables uh, so i actually approached the soil association who promote organic food and farming uh, and they had an active local food team uh, and i thought right they must know about growing vegetables and how to sell them um, and I just heard about the emerging model of uh, veggie box schemes. At that time, there was a handful in the UK. I said, yeah. well, how do I do that? Uh, and they said, well, this sounds really interesting, exactly the sort of thing we'd like to promote, uh, but we haven't really got any information. So I volunteered at that time to go and work with them, and I visited the handful of box schemes at the time and wrote their technical guide on setting up veggie box schemes. And... Uh, and now there's hundreds of veggie box schemes and some really successful ones. You know, Riverford uh, Organic and Abel Coal are massive. Uh, yeah. And a lot of people uh, are, are getting veg in that way. But um, just 15 years ago, they were almost non-existent. So that's a great example of a model that has connected farms and food production uh, with people at home and made it quite convenient. Uh, the other one is farmers markets. And again, in Stroud, we've got probably the best farmers market in the whole country, we would say. It was certainly one of the first, actually Bath was the first to establish as a as a modern farmers market. Stroud yeah. was the, the second that we know of, uh, but really high quality produce uh, and people really uh, appreciating, you know, the wealth of, of great food that we have around us. Uh, and the benefits of that, you know, I think we're really seeing seeing that right now. You know, in in uh, uh, this lockdown we've had, we've seen real support for local producers, and actually, local producers have probably been busier than ever uh, uh, getting their their goods out. So people both are appreciating the supply, um, but also just the quality of that food that, that they're getting in these difficult times. Oh, nice, good way of putting it. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, it's. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I think it's just recent. Obviously, the recent situation has amplified people's um, amount of time, perhaps, that's more available to them uh, yeah. to think about stuff a bit more. But actually, they're in trouble there because that is a one way street. Once you've had properly good, locally grown, I don't know, broad beans or yeah. asparagus, you it's over for you. There is no more pretending that the other stuff you used to get in the shop is okay. Well, you can pretend it's okay because it is okay, but it's no longer brilliant and it's yeah. no longer, uh, you know, what you want. And that shifts, I think, that shifts your uh, your, your perception of what you're going to accept. And then all of a sudden what happens is that sort of slight mind shift where perhaps the food that you buy or the, the drinks that you buy wasn't, of the utmost importance to you and now it's more important than it was before 
Yeah. I it's think that's how it got yeah. me anyway. That's that's how it got me hmm. over the years. Oh. Anyway, sorry, what I've done there is completely mug your point and steal it away from you. Um, but I quite I quite like talking about it. So the importance of farming and landscape on a local scale. Yeah. So I, I think that can be quite interesting as well, isn't it? Because we were talking about hops earlier. And Kent, was it Kent, I think, where they used to grow all the hops? Yeah, Herefordshire and Kent, yeah. Herefordshire and Kent. And and that impact on that landscape, even when perhaps they're not growing hops so much in Kent now as they used to, you can still see where that used to happen. And so there's, it's not only a sort of that, that ephemeral kind of thoughtful connection with the landscape, but there's a physical one as well, and a biological one, and a mycological one, an environmental one, all rolled yeah. up together uh and and yeah that that, that oh okay so that's interesting right well, have you have you thought of i heard you pouring more beer so i assume I you've thought <laughs> <laughs> the glass is half full <laughs> excellent excellent that's, that's the way to have it that's the way to have it i'm on the water today i um i not yesterday but the day before i slightly overindulged in the first batch of uh elderflower fizz that was ready which is really nice. just, beer isn't it let's be honest but without any of the, the bitterness and um it's really nice uh and i probably had a bit more than i should have done yes, i do love a right. good elderflower champagne oh, it's mm. so nice it's mm. so nice it's easy to make and it's so it's such um it's a really nice seasonal thing you know yeah. you kind of make it when you first see the elderflowers and then by the end of july it's all gone and you've you've done with that another year it's quite i quite like that it's sort of fleeting so you've brought something else in there i mean it's local and there's seasonality isn't there and uh sort of eating with the seasons and making use of what 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 you have then so those elder flowers will sometime turn to elderberries and they make just an amazing cordial for you know to keep through the winter and to kind of beat back the cold bugs yeah yeah, they make a pretty good um, alcoholic tincture as well, if I'm yeah. honest with you, um, uh, infusion. But OK, right. So, Greg, uh, you've topped up your beer. You're ready to go on point number two. Point number What's two. So number one was about localism, shortening yeah. the supply chain, connecting to the landscape. Uh, so point number two is about sustainability. Uh, so I'm not being very humorous. This is all quite serious stuff no, here. That's uh, okay, that's okay. <laughs> but sustainability is a word that is banded around. It is it? banded around. And again, you know, we, we're, we're in the midst of a crisis. Uh, one of the things that we're balancing between life and death is our economy, you know, the effect on our economy and the long-term livelihoods of people. And what I really hope is that in that we don't just say right you know let's all scramble back to business as usual because business as usual isn't working and it's sort of the 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 foundation of a lot of the global ills that we're facing so what are we going to do differently what is it that we can do differently Uh, and that is what we are talking about about sustainability so however we do business or produce food we want to do it in a way that we can carry on doing forever uh, without um, undermining our ability to 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 live on the planet and actually it is a case you know we've got to the point where uh, just not making further damage is not enough. We actually need a sort of regenerative approach. We've actually got to undo some of the damage that we've already done. Uh, And food, farming and our landscape is a really great opportunity to green our economy. There is, you know, ultimately there is no greener economy than, uh, you know, cultivating and harvesting the power of the sun into your food. and, uh, you know, there's real sort of purpose and meaning that. What better than feeding people? Um, so, you know, what, are, what we want to what, what we want to be involved in is part of that sort of sustainable agriculture. And again, you know, that is the, the basis of our brewery. We brew organic beers. Out of the 2,500 breweries in the UK, there's only a handful that brew organic beers. Uh, many of them just do a token one-off organic beer because there's a market. Well, that's not what we do. We're not about the market. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. If you want to be a sustainable brewery, of course you should brew organic 
beers because that is the the raw ingredient, the basis of our product, and we want it uh, to be grown in a way that is uh, not detrimental to the planet. Uh, and uh, as an you know uh, an organic farm, uh, you know one of the things that is uh, irrefutable is that they have a much higher level of biodiversity than any other farm. And of course, yeah. it would have you know if you're not spraying all the insects on it that you are uh, you know you're not. Um, uh, taking away from that, you are going to have a, a much richer environment. And in fact, you know, organic farming practice is about working with the uh, with with nature to control those pests. You want to see birds out there eating insects. You want to see uh, some diversity. And the sort of byproduct of that uh, thriving farm is food. You know, uh, so and. I suppose the other thing that um, is quite clear about organic farm is that it it actually fixes more nitrogen in the soil. I mean, or sort of, I uh, say, carbon in the soil. It's actually the, the the humus in the soil is much much greater, and it fixes that carbon in the soil. So, you know, when we're talking about carbon sequestration, uh, organic farming is the is the best way to achieve that. Uh, and it yeah. really frustrates me that. Uh, there's sort of a lot of misconception about organic farm uh, farming as being uh, backwards, regressive, uh, that uh, there's no chance of feeding the whole globe if we all went to organic farming that actually we see a loss in production. And I think that's that not is, true. That's, that's not, true. not true at all. And actually organic farms can be uh, far more productive. So, you know, intensive farming uh, you have sort of a great deal of a monoculture at one time, and then the ground is bare or empty or unproductive for a good deal of the rest of the time. Uh, and sort of good mixed farming, looking at things like agroforestry, where you're actually mixing crops and you've always got a crop in the ground. Uh, you know, these are the sort of techniques. Uh, permaculture, you know, there, there's some uh, techniques for really um, increasing the yields that we have available. And actually, when we look at the world at large, uh, a good number of subsistence farmers are by default farming organically, although you know that that uh, chemical producers do peddle their wares. Um, but those little uh, farms are producing a, an enormous amount of food around the world. So I would like us to really take seriously in this country, looking at how we uh, look at our landscape, which might change as a result because we're not that big and we haven't got that much land. And if we are going to be more uh, uh, self-sustaining you know if we are looking at uh, uh, I think what they what, what we talk about is food sovereignty you know that we can self-sustain ourselves through our own food production which is a is a tall order in our little country with lots of people but we yeah. can certainly do a lot better yeah 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 and I think you, that it's so nice to hear you speak so passionately about that but it, in such a level way as well I've found this debate over the years of and, and I don't think there should be a debate of organic or not organic but there we go it, there is one and I have found it very very polarized because of people's interest in it and actually it's quite nice to hear you talk about it in, in such a sort of just laid back but forthright manner it's quite refreshing really Great. So thanks. So thanks for that. that. That's um, nice to hear. So that was two points. So local, sustainable, uh, and uh, I think the third point for me uh, is that it's all about people. Um, you know, in all of this, we, we we often hear about money and economics. We hear about the environment and how we shouldn't be damaging the planet. And of course, the other thing in all of this is people, and. Um, uh, in farming, people have become quite detached from where their food comes from. But even as farmers, they're quite detached from the farms that they farm. Uh, sort of modern industrial chemical farming, you're relying on an external expert to come and advise. Uh, and it becomes quite mechanical. Now, that's a bit of a generalization. Actually, all farmers are pretty passionate about what they do. Yeah. But... I think there is a disconnect, you know, clearly, again, in small scale organic uh, farms, there's uh, much more of a connection between, uh, well, you, it has to be, you have to be more in tune with the capability of the land, you're not trying to force it, uh, you've got to understand the balance, uh, uh, the natural balance between, uh, you, you know, your, your, your crop and the surrounding uh, wildlife and, and um, uh, 
uh, you know, diversity of that. Um, you, you've, it's a much more, uh, I think it's a much higher level of husbandry and responsibility of the land. And just getting back to the people, I think the, 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 the farmers themselves have been, uh, what's the word, the kudos of farming has really dropped. And I think we've lost a lot of young people in farming because it's not seen as a sexy occupation. <laughs> I know some pretty sexy farmers. Let yeah, me tell you, there's not high return out of it, and um, and you know they're not recognised for the for the um, for the great work that they do. So I would love to see a regenerative farming where you know uh, people, you know, farmers are really recognised for the great value that they they bring, both in producing really high quality food and managing that landscape and making it sort of uh, accessible to the rest of us. Well, that takes you beautifully back to your point about not returning to the old model when we were yeah. talking about sustainability. That yeah. house of cards has tumbled and, and, and the short term motivation of something being, right, as you say, sexy, because, the, 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 you know, the profitability comes into that, right? Yeah you know, the whole profitability model needs to change. It needs to not just be about money. It needs to be more honest about what the costs are involved with food production. Yeah. And the the people thing for me, you put this in a nutshell really well, but I my take on it always is that we, we sort of, we're very good as, at people, as being people, at looking at everything from the outside. And we are part of the system, right? We are part of nature we are part we are the only part of farming really everything would would just revert to the wild if we weren't here right and so we are connected to it and we are involved with it and and we should be proud of that and care about it and take more notice of it and not just think about food over cost equals expense you know yeah and i think you know that to, to it's all about uh our relationships, our relationship with the farmers that produce our food, but also in running a business, you know, as a business owner, actually the relationships we have with our suppliers yeah, uh, and the sort of loyalties we have. And again, recognizing the good work they do and not just because they're the cheapest and also the relationship we have with our customers. Uh, and we've you know, long had a very tricky and even increasingly trickier relationship with um, retail. So I've always vowed I would never sell to the supermarkets because supermarkets undermine our core business, which is selling beer to pubs. Uh, and supermarkets notoriously uh, uh, you know, sell beer at very low cost uh, and it would undermine it. Also, the second you put a beer in a supermarket, uh, it becomes ubiquitous and you've devalued your product. And it shouldn't be like that. Uh, also, you know, where do supermarkets spend their money? What are the, what's their purpose? Is it about looking after their people or is it about making profit? And does it suck that money out of your local economy? You know, where if you spend your money in the farmer's market or on your box scheme, the people that earn it will just respend it. They'll come back to my bar and buy more beer. Uh, and it increases the wealth of that locality. Uh, and there's a concept there by uh, the New Economics Foundation, which they call the leaky bucket. You, know, you could fill the bucket up with money, but if it's got holes in and it pours out, you know, we're, we're sending our profits overseas, then we're not going to retain that wealth. And that works on a very local, local level. So I've had a very, you know, uh, uncomfortable relationship with the multiples. Uh, however, there's a few out there uh, that do have an eye on that and are trying to do the right thing. Uh, and I don't know if I can mention them on the yes, podcast. Yes, this is exactly the place to mention. This is the place to mention. So we know that uh, uh, the the co-op, for instance, is member-owned. You know, its own uh, customers actually own the whole enterprise and have a stake in that. Um, and Waitrose again is is employee-owned. It's a it's a partnership of its employees and have a, a you know of all the supermarkets we have, they have a great record of championing organic and sustainability. Uh, and, you know, try their best to give a fair return to producers. Um, so, you know, we, we are uh, currently exploring how we might get some beers into Waitrose. And actually, we've got um, 
uh, a really quite exciting partnership with River Cottage to brew some of their beers under license, and we're Hold exploring on. that. Hold topic. on a minute, you can't just whip that out. That was <laughs> the old Alpha I mean, I used to have quite a lot to do with that gang. Yeah, you um, did. <laughs> so um, we've we've been asked to brew some beer for River Cottage, and uh, and that is just a great opportunity for us. Brilliant, brilliant. And what are you making? So we've resurrected Stinger. And I've been oh. out um, harvesting nettles and filled up all our brewery freezers with nettles for the next year's brew. Uh, and we're going to do a rye pale ale as well. So a couple of small 330 mil bottles that uh, we're pretty excited about. And we're hoping to brew it, uh, if not next week, the week after. Oh, that's quite exciting. That, that is exciting. I, I, there's something nice, isn't there, about the starting process of brewing. Now I'm not a brewer. I'm not going to, you're not going to get involved with that, but I am going to, you know, I do do my elder flower stuff once a year. And it's a bit like planting a seed in the ground. If you're into growing, or it's a bit like noticing where a certain type of plant grows. If you're a forager, it's the beginning of something and you're never quite sure what the destination's going to look like because it's alive and it's a bit different, but that sense of anticipation is, I love it. I, <laughs> I think it's really cool. Do you get a, a massive buzz out of starting a new batch of beer? I get more of a buzz at finishing it and opening it and tasting it and thinking, this is great, you know, <laughs> that all yeah. that effort that went before as well, you know, it, it went to plan. Uh, but no, I mean, you're right. The process right from the start, mashing in, uh, you know, every step of the way has got to be right. Make sure, you know, you, you can brew a great beer and then if you don't clean the casks and you have a dirty cask, it'll just ruin all that effort. So every step of the way, you've got to be alert and uh, uh, and, and get it right. But um, I, that, that is the craft and we love it. I've got a question about that because you've mentioned that specifically. How do you clean the inside of a beer cask? I mean, you can't exactly get in there and scrub it out, can you? No, we stick it on a spigot and it's got a little whirly head on it that sprays the inside of the cask and it has a rinse and then we give it a sort of detergent clean it dissolves all the organic matter in there and then it has a, a rinse with uh, super hot water so it gives it, you know, heats it up and pasteurizes it and then we rinse it again with with uh, sort of potable water so it goes through a whole load of rinses um, and then we fill it with beer. And, you know, talking about cask, again, just, you know, that... For us, really, that's where we started. And I would say it's probably the most uh, environmentally friendly way of drinking beer. Those casks, you fill them up, you send them to a pub, you drink the beer, they come back, you refill them. Uh, they've not traveled very far. Uh, we've got casks that we've been using for the last 15 years and certainly stainless casks last a lot longer. And then that beer is drunk in a social setting uh, with friends and it's sort of moderated. Uh, whereas packaged beer we have to send it off transport it to a packager they then put it in glass bottles and cans and they wrap it up and then it gets transported back to us and we have to keep it in a warehouse and then we stick it on little vans and we send it to the little shops around the place yeah. uh, and it spends a bit longer and then all those bottles and cans have to get recycled and most of the glass gets crushed out and turned into asphalt for roads and the cans will get recycled and actually much better than bottles because it's much less energy to melt them down and turn them into cans again but if we're talking about uh, sustainability, drinking beer in a pub out of a cask is the most uh, sustainable way of doing it. And uh, again, you know, a little change in policy, maybe reducing duty on, uh, on uh, draft beers and increasing duty on packaged beers would have a dramatic impact on sustainability and health, you know, rather than drinking uh, high value, high strength spirits at home, why not go and drink a low alcohol product with your friends in the pub? And that has the added, you know, bonus as a man who is reasonably proud of his sense of taste. Beer is slightly better out of a barrel. Much better. Yeah, yeah I you said much. I didn't want to upset you because I know you've worked hard with your, your cans and your, your bottle stuff as well. But for me, it's straight out of a cask, ideally with no pipe work involved, just yeah. out of a gravity-fed tap. Oh, just 
Well, take me back there now. I'm the one hundred percent. I'm with I'm you there. I mean, most packaged most packaged beer is artificially carbonated, uh, and you get that sort of carbonic prickle of a you know bottle of Coke. Uh, it's yeah. fizzy. The bubbles are all sort of big, and you know, whereas a naturally carbonated product like your elderflower champagne is just so much finer. It's a different thing altogether. Um, no, it, it, it is a different product. It's quality. Brilliant. Well, Greg, given the fact that I, despite my infallible spreadsheet, I failed to send you um, the information you required to prepare yourself for the podcast, you, you've navigated the main segment brilliantly. You've come up with three great things. We've, we've, we've zoomed in on some of it. That's a bit corporate, isn't it? We've got the magnifying glass out and we've looked quite closely at some of it. Other stuff we've skated over a little bit come up with some nice examples uh, and, and I quite I, I really like them I really like them and I've enjoyed talking to them to, to you about them a lot you're a natural orator on your subject or if you're not you've worked very hard on it over the years because you you certainly come across very well and put your points most succinctly and clearly you're also very good at not allowing me to interrupt uh, which <laughs> which helps a lot um, I I'm now going to tell you, because you obviously don't know, about the final part of the podcast, where you have three final tasks to perform before you go. Okay? Have you still got enough? Have you got a mouthful of beer left? Or are you I'm getting still, Yeah, it's not half full anymore, which is not my style. <laughs> you are supposed to choose a book about food and drink that oh, you would probably. like to read desert island situation and a drink to have and i think i might know what this will be but a drink to have while you're reading it and it's not it doesn't have to be like a desert island desert island it could be just somewhere where you can't leave and you've only got one book but it's a book of your choice uh, about food and drink and one drink that you're going to drink while you read that book and then once you've come up with those which would be easy you'll get them off the top of your head i'm sure sorry um yeah what was the second one <laughs> Say that again. I was writing down my first. first okay. one's the book. The second one is the drink you're going to drink while you okay. read the book. Okay. Yeah. And the third, last, and final job before I boot you off the podcast to go and enjoy the rest of your weekend, uh, which hopefully will be work free for you, is to nominate somebody else to come on and and experience the joy that is the Madam's Cast. Oh gosh. They don't have to come on. They don't yeah. have to be alive. They can be dead. They can be real or fictitious. Um, they might be, you know, it, you, you've got a lot of license with all of this. Okay. Okay. I've just jotted a few things down here. Good. So. Bring it on you, Greg. Um, I mean, this is, has never been my strong point, but I genuinely have got a tick in the box that says I've sent you the, uh, the format document. So I've clearly failed to do that. I apologize again. Uh, right, I'm just thinking about my book. Uh, actually, one of my favourite books is uh, The Fauna and Flora Britannica, which has got oh. just a list of... Uh, well, actually, I think it's called Flora Britannica, and it's got a list of all the plants in the UK, and it's got their alternative uses, and it has history, and it's got all sorts of uh, really interesting information about it. Uh, and there's a whole series of them, Fauna Britannica, Fauna Britannica, different, different series, but they are fantastic books. Uh, and it's one of those books that you just flick open, uh, you know, as a reference, and it's always on the shelf, and it's, it's probably a, a great go-to book. So that would be my book. Oh, it sounds and, like a and, good thing. You can just and and I would be surprised if you haven't got it on your bookshelf and if you haven't, that's one to have. <laughs> See, this is a recurring theme. <laughs> so when I started the, the podcasting uh, way back in the mists of time, I thought to myself, I reckon I'm going to have most of the books that people um, ask to have as their book. And so far, I think we've done recorded 10 or 12 episodes and I've had one of the books so far so what this project has turned into is a quite an expensive book buying habit for me now i've got quite a few books on plants but i don't have this one and my daughter is called flora so i'm clearly gonna have to go and buy it yeah. thank you Greg, second hand book peddler somewhere i'll have to find that one from and what are you gonna drink i wonder 
while you while you peruse the flora botanica well you might think i'll choose a particular beer but i'm not uh you've suggested that i might be on a desert island uh, and actually i spent quite a bit of time traveling around africa uh, and i in that time i was uh, uh uh sort of investigating having a look at uh the various alcoholic drinks that were produced across the continent and okay. my favorite uh, out of all of those was palm wine uh, and palm wine is is tapped from a growing palm tree you sort of cut into the into the into the growing uh, palm uh, and the sap oozes out and it's super sweet uh, and almost instantaneously starts fermenting on the surface of the tree uh, and as you capture that uh, uh, that sap it turns into this amazing uh, sort of white um, uh, uh, wine uh, and it does the most incredible things to your legs. You feel absolutely <laughs> fine until you start having to walk it. And it's a, a quite a nice intoxicating brew. Uh, and, and and that was my, my favorite um, drink whilst I was away in Africa. And I think uh, if I'm on a desert island, I should be able to find a nice palm tree to tap. Yes. Yes, you should. You mm. should. I like that. I like the idea that you can just, yeah, how long does it take to be ready? Well, I say it's almost instantaneous. You know, uh, as you collect it straight away, it's a kid's drink. <laughs> By day two, you're you're uh, really getting going. Uh, and you know, when it's fully fermented, it's quite a strong wine. But I'd guess at, you know something like eleven percent, so much stronger than a beer. Uh, and uh, all the little palm wine joints you see on the side of the road have these uh, big round uh, sort of wine vessels. I don't know if you've seen, you know, those sort of big round green things that you sometimes see wine. In, and they've actually got palm wine fermenting them, and it's all sort of effervescing away in there, really lively. Uh, and of course, uh, anywhere there's sugar, there's yeast. And on a palm tree that's leaking sap, those wild yeast are already, you know, there. So it's literally fermenting as it comes out of out of the tree. Uh, and uh, you know, by the time you sort of climb up uh, and and take it down, some of, some of these palm trees, like a, a date palm tapster will climb up to 20, 25, 30 meters with nothing but a, a palm frond uh, wrapped around the tree to, to sort of um, get up there. It's a really quite a, a risky job. Uh, but the, the product is so valued. It's just, just such a good drink that, um, you know, it can be a lucrative business. That sounds like a pretty sustainable harvest to me as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, tap the tree. When it stops giving you any juice, plug it up, move on to the next one. Exactly. Brilliant. Oh, that was a massive curveball. I was not expecting that. Not well done. <laughs> and okay, so final final job then. And I'm sorry, this turned into an arduous task for you, but final job. Who would you yeah. nominate on well, the Madam's They don't uh, come on, but nominations are good. This this would be again, it's a, a food related one, of course. Uh, we've been talking about local products and organic products. Uh, we live uh, in Stroud, which is uh, renowned for its um, its five valleys, which all um, have rivers in, and they come together in the town of Stroud. Uh, and on the peninsulas between those valleys, we've got uh, the the uh, escarpment, the chalk escarpment, the oolitic limestone. And directly opposite my house, looking across to the top of one of those, uh, is Minchinhampton Common, which is totally flat, the top of the plateau. Uh, it's a bit like a savanna up there, uh, and I say it's like a savanna because it's flat. Uh, and across it, there's hawthorn trees and, and bushes, and they're all grazed by cattle. Uh, so they've got these flat bottoms, just like an African savanna. Uh, and those cattle are owned by uh, a farm uh, called Wofeldane Farm, uh, which is uh, an organic farm, and they make the most amazing organic cheeses. Uh, and the, the cheesemaker there is a lady called Melissa Ravenhill, and she is the most amazing lady. Uh, when I was walking at the, working at the Soil Association, she came and spoke at several of the events that uh, I organise around local food and has a real uh, passion about local food, but uh, just an amazing product. And again, cheese is one of those things that across the UK we've just got the most amazing diversity uh, of yeah. cheeses. but I would recommend the um, uh, the, the uh, Woeful Dane blue cheese which is better than any Stilton that you've ever tried it is bluer than blue and super creamy and well worth a go so I'd invite Melissa to come and talk to us about uh, her cheeses 
That sounds absolutely... And I haven't had a cheesemaker on yet, so that could be an absolute... You know, it, you, we could be ticking lots of boxes with that. Melissa sounds like the perfect, perfect person to talk to. Greg, thanks so much, mate. It's been so good to have a little chit-chat with you. I'm sorry for the curveball on the not being quite prepared for exactly what you had to come up with. You did no incredibly worries. well. We've got through. <laughs> yeah, you're talking to you. Astonishingly uh, accurate. So great stuff. Um, can I can I wish you a very happy weekend? Yeah, well, uh, I've got a couple of kids. Uh, one of them is having their half birthday this weekend. I think they've completely forgotten that Sunday is actually meant to be my day, and I might just drop <laughs> that in on the on the party. Yeah, nice. Actually, it's Father's Day. You so listen up. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, what age are your kids, Greg? 14 and 17, so they're pretty self-operating these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a few years ahead of me, that's for sure. Oh, mate, well, look, whatever I always think, any time spent with the family, apart from quite angry, frustrating, badly planned times, most of the time you spend with the family is always a gift and a joy, and what better weekend could you have? So right on that point, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to say thank you very much for coming on. Uh, to join the Madam's cast and I for one will be looking out for your beers as ever and getting hold of them in whatever way I can to drink them down thanks for your chat great thanks and really looking forward to seeing you down here again sometime soon yeah I can't you know I can't wait I was talking to Steve about it the other day we've done a couple of um partnership with you guys and it is always just such a natural place for us to be and it it, it feels like a really joyful experience every time we do it so i can't wait to do the next one either well when you come down i'll have some uh, woeful dame blue cheese for you to try oh okay okay uh, uh yeah okay well let's do that and i'm gonna get in touch with melissa and see if we can get her on to tell us about that. excellent okay cheers greg you too. Have Best, a great weekend. bye bye bye